Hello, and welcome back to Chapters, a book report podcast, hosted by the Rack and Tool Collection. I am your host, Charlie, and oh, oh, yes, I see a hand way back waving from the gloom. What is your question, young child? What is the Raconteur Collection? I am glad you asked, young child. The Raconteur Collection is, well, a collection of stories hosted by Jack and Charlie. They go over a variety of topics, such as the Mysterious Quartz Foundation, to Jack's Parables of the Root Beer, and little specials like this, chapters, all about books. Currently, we are in, well, we're getting, I guess, to the uh, latter half of the Chronicles of Narnia. This episode, all about the silver chair. The one before was, of course, Horse and His Boy. Yes. (laughs) Don't worry about that one. So it's the pages and... The painters. But Chapters is really all about trying to bring back a little bit of that joy of reading. And been very happy to say that as these episodes have come out about the Chronicles of Narnia, gotten a lot of messages from our parents, from our friends, really from a lot of close listeners of the show saying like, hey, we've dived back into it. Hey, we've gotten interested in it. And that's honestly, that's the whole point of this is just to like spark that little bit of curiosity, a little bit of like, hey, I could read that. And then, of course, we picked the Chronicles of Narnia because they're rather simple, yet I think one of the best old set of fairy tales, children's stories oh, yeah. you really could wish for. I mean, honestly. But as we do with chapters, we're just going to jump right into it. And of course, I have a couple questions for my guest sitting opposite in the chair for me. The illustrious, the brilliant, the never leaving the sunlit lands, Jack. Jack? We are... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <sighs> nice. As, of course, we usually say how our weeks were on chapters until the end, just as a little bit of a different format change to see kind of what people prefer. I'm pretty sure we have slipped up and done how our weeks were in the beginning of chapters, but you know what? I think it, so. It's okay. It doesn't matter. But, Jack, what I'm really curious about is when we first started this, I, you know, I really wanted to get you into reading something again, and... You know, I guess five books in at this point. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling about really the the act of reading, the act of reading these books, and how's it been going? Is it have you faltered at all? Have you been like, God, I can't believe I have to read this one, or I can't believe I have to read this chapter tonight, or anything like that? Like, I kind of want to know and like get a check in for the mental capacity that you've been having for the reading, and if it makes you want to read anything else. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so Laura and I have been switching off reading to Ellie more and more. Um, especially with these last couple books, like Laura's been getting really into them. Uh, and so she's been reading to Ellie more, but Ellie's still really into them. And I'm also still really into them as well. Um, I really loved going back and reading through the silver chair just as much as I have the other books as well. Uh, in fact, before I came here, I reread the last like two chapters Mm. because I was like, you know, like this is like a really good ending to this book. It is. Um, and so I've really enjoyed, um, reading and the more that i'm reading especially with narnia because i i know the beats kind of but it's so much fun to rediscover this yes i wonder if that same kind of excitement would translate to something that i haven't read before mm. maybe that i have like some prior knowledge of right um because like i've read the hobbit but i have not read the fellowship of the ring two towers those are pretty dense books those are dense books uh, like i know those beats but i don't know it as well as i know you know narnia narnia yeah uh so it'd be interesting to kind of go into something like that uh I would say we could do Harry Potter, but 
you know, J.K. Rowling's kind of controversial nowadays. I would still be fine with doing Harry Potter. Harry Potter, I think, would be a good one. We had talked about doing a regular episode over just a movie source for a stone because Kate and I love those movies. And I mean, you know, always so good. I also thought about, too, after we finished The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis has a science fiction trilogy called The Space mm. Trilogy. Which, yes, which I've never read. Which might be an interesting one, and it might be nice, you know, a little bit more of an elevated C.S. Lewis, a little bit more of it. Again, I haven't read those books since high school, so I would like to reread them. Yeah, it'd be interesting to be see, option. like, if the writing, after, like, reading these so freshly right. and, like, seeing how the writing is the same and also different, mm. it'd be really interesting to kind of see where that falls. Yeah. Um, and if we like that style more or not. Yeah. Um, one that I've heard an audiobook, not in its entirety, but I would say like 75% is uh, The Great Divorce. Mm, yeah. That would be an interesting one to read as well. Um, but overall, like I've really enjoyed reading. It's been a lot of fun nice. and has got me interested in reading more in the future, I'd say. So yeah. I'm I'm feeling great about it. Yeah, I, you know, for me, it's been really nice to, I think, step back because I think I went on a long streak there where I was reading a lot of like dense fantasy books, you know, Brandon Sanderson, uh, you know, all of the Lord of the Rings. I'm just finishing up Return of the King and it's really interesting reading Return of the King and Lewis or reading, you know, sorry, Tolkien and Lewis next to each other at the same time because, of course, they similar writing group, you know, very similar like era that they're writing in. They both are interested in kind of the same things, but of course, different perspectives of, I would say, the same things. Yes, but I would agree. Overall, you know, it's crazy to me how just with the art of writing, how different you can be, but accomplish like very different things. Tolkien is so verbose and paints really like paints such a beautiful picture, narrative landscape and gives you all that feeling, but so vivid in my mind. But just as vivid is, you know. The Chronicles of Narnia. I mean, in the beginning of the silver chair, when he's describing the back of, you know, what experiment house and the shrubs and how she's crying from the bullies. And he he talks Mm -hmm. about the type of bullies that are there and how they're, you know, they're almost regarded as interests by the the headmaster who they end up becoming favorites. Because they're like weird, like, you know, special cases that they can like study, quote unquote. And, you know, he he describes all that, Jack. And I'm like, dude, 100 percent on board. I know exactly what you're talking about. I know. And it's crazy to me how he's able to paint these vivid pictures by not saying that much i think a lot of my history with these books helps a lot with that as well you know i have childhood built up and heard them so many times but like it is still wild to me how i'm reading these listening to them in my car and i can perfectly see i'm like perfectly see what i think it should look like you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and they're so consistent too between me like going between the books and you know we took a little bit of a break from i would say like the the main story because i was thinking about this jack and you really have i think two books in the chronicles of narnia and all seven books that are kind of outside stories which is horse and his boy and magician's nephew but really from line of the wardrobe all the way to last battle they kind of do follow like the similar line of kings like from prince caspian i mean we're still talking about caspian in the silver chair and mm-hmm. his son Rillian. and then of course you know which going cool into name. oh yeah i don't know <laughs> what a yeah I love Rillian in this book, too. I love how yeah. Anyway, we'll get to that. But I think it's really interesting to place those there. And I, you know, very excited to get to uh, Magician's Nephew next, because, again, a big departure, very much like Horse and His Boy, big departure from that. And then, of course, more than excited to get to Last Battle. 
In fact, I'm really excited for the audio version of Last Battle because at least in the versions I've been listening to, I think Patrick Stewart does the Last Battle. Oh, nice. So, nice. You know, I think that'll be. Uh, I, I, need, I need to get that one. So I think that'll be, awesome. be uh, that'll be cool. And I think they're available for free on YouTube, which I okay. discovered recently after spending like four or five credits to get the other books, which I was kind of like. There are a couple people but I had like that eight, just I like straight up credits. read it while they're sitting there. Yeah. Like, hello, welcome back. Just like from like a, their phone camera. And I'm like, man, this is a booming industry. You know, but I will say, like you said, you know, there's two books that kind of uh, have their stories outside of like the quote unquote main story. Mm -hmm. While you have those bits and pieces here and there, I will say, I believe it's only the horse and his boy and the last battle that don't have to do directly with like outside influence that we perceive in the book. Right. Because all the other ones involve, um, Either Susan Edmund and Lucy being summoned to the world, and we like follow their story, or right, you know, a group like Jill and uh, Jill and Pole, magician's nephew, or Eustace. You know, I yeah, because I think the last battle. I could, Jill of course, Pole, we're getting we're, yeah, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but I think the last battle starts with shift and then puzzle. Yes, yeah, and I don't. So think, I think it's only the horse and his boy in the last battle yeah. that start because like, I don't think the children come in until later. Mm-mm. They start like entirely in Narnia, right? And that's always interesting. But as with, I think we've done with most of these books, I just want to read the first sentence real quick to start us off and kind of dive us in. Go ahead. (laughs) Chapter one, Behind the Gym. It was a dull autumn day and Jill Pole was crying behind the gym. And again, I mean, gets right in there. I I don't think it's quite as good as like the opening for Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which <laughs> once was a boy named Houston's Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That one's a, a, a banger. <laughs> oh, it starts <laughs> right off, <laughs> like right away. So for good. Sure. But Jack, walk me through this beginning part. Um, again, as with Edmund coming back in Prince Caspian and being kind of a changed character, I really like seeing Eustace as a changed character from Voyage of the Dawn Treader knowing that he's grown and that he's different and how he used to be kind of perceived a certain way. And now Jill kind of perceives him differently. But talk about this a little bit of this beginning part, kind of like up into the point to where they're getting into Narnia. So like you said, in the beginning starts out, Jill's crying. Like Jill's like a new character to the Narnia series. Uh, it kind of goes on, you know, talking about how she's feeling. And then this boy comes up, starts talking to her. And you find out shortly after that's Scrub. Us- yeah, it's useless. It's Scrub. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. And I like how you can still see uses that we knew in the beginning. Yes. But like a lot with Edmund, you also see that he's obviously grown up a lot. He's matured a lot in certain ways, but he's still, you know, scrub. Yeah. Um, and so he eventually is like, hey, Jill, uh, what if I told you we can go somewhere magical? I know. You know, and you're kind of like, well, what do you, that can mean a lot of things. Like, what do you mean? Uh, obviously it's Narnia, but you know, Jill like doesn't believe him, doesn't believe him, and then finally, uh, she's like, okay, fine, I believe you. Like, what what do we have to do? What do we got to do? And somehow, Eustace like is like, I know how to get into Narnia, and this is where you kind of see the old Eustace come back a little bit, mm-hmm. like the know-it-all kind of like, oh, I know how to get there because you know, I, I dabbled in a bit of magic here and there, you right. know. But so they're trying to do this like incantation and. Right as, like, they're trying to start doing the incantation, the bullies, like, find Jill again. 
And so they have to like escape and run off past this stone wall. I forget how. I think yeah. they just go through a gate. Yeah, there's much. like a gate that's always locked. But there's like, he's like, and maybe at one time it had been opened once, but it was like one time was enough to where everybody was always like, oh, what if it's unlocked? Which I love as well. I He's really good. Lewis, I should say, is very good at capitalizing on those childish emotions, especially like the, I think there's a couple lines in there. We talks about how. Jill gets really angry at Eustace. He's like, as likely you're to do if you're caught crying, like stuff like that, where you're Mm -hmm. it's he's kind of imparting life lessons without being like what I learned today was, you know, he's kind of just inserting himself in there and being like, oh, hey, if you do this, you understand, which I always really, really appreciate about him. But yeah, they immediately it's pretty quick. Not quite as long, I think, as. I don't know, well, Lion looks in a wardrobe or Prince Caspian starts off pretty quick, too. But very quickly, they get into Narnia. Oh, yeah. And we kind of start not in Narnia per se, but in Aslan's country per se, which I kind of want to get your impression of that, because right from the get go, I think the silver chair does have a different sort of vibe, a different sort of feeling than the other books. Right. It starts off differently and the characters are given like a very specific mission. You know, Jill's given these signs by Aslan. But before that, of course, Jack, what do you think about Eustace falling off this cliff? And yeah. tell me a little bit about the way he describes how huge this cliff is. If I could go back. Yeah, I, I was like, find... let me go because like, let me go back and find the specifics here. Um, It's right before he falls, right? Correct. He's like describing how high up they are. Let okay, here we go. Let me see. <clears throat> she now realized that Scrub had some excuse for looking white, for no cliff in our world is to be compared with this. Imagine yourself at the top of the very highest cliff you know, and imagine yourself looking down to the very bottom, and then imagine that the precipice goes on below that, as far again, ten times as far, twenty times as far. And when you've looked down all the distance, imagine little white things that might at first glance be mistaken for sheep, but you presently realize that they are clouds. Not little wreaths of mist, but enormous white puffy clouds, which are themselves as big as most mountains. And at last, in between those clouds, you get your first glimpse of the real bottom, so far away that you can't make out whether it's field or wood, land or water. Further below those clouds, then you are just above them. Which, uh, that's crazy. So they're like, you're, all, you're basically like in outer space. Is that's kind of what it feels like. like. Yeah, that's that's honestly the, the impression I get is that like you're looking so far down, which is it's really cool. That, that image alone, I would love to see like a really cool concept art of that image. I'm sure it exists out there. But. And of course, there's a little scuffle on the edge. And yeah, because like Yusuf is like looking over and then Jill like grabs him. So she wants to prove that she's not afraid of heights and she like goes a little closer. And then she realizes how high up it is, which I think anybody when they're that high up, like I always say, I'm not that scared of heights. But it's like, have I ever really been in a situation to be scared of heights? Like, no, not yeah. really. <laughs> I mean, like claustrophobia, like I don't think I'm claustrophobic, but. I probably would be claustrophobic if I was in a dark cave squeezing through like some dark thing, which you couldn't turn around or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Hint, hint. And so, Um, yeah, so, you know, Yusuf falls and she's like, (laughs) oh, my God. I know. He's dead. Yeah. 
And then she's like, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know where I am. And then suddenly. But there is. There's one line I want to read before we get into to uh, Aslan showing up here. So there's this line. Then she remembered again the scream that Scrub had given when he fell and burst into tears. Crying is all right in its own way while it lasts. But you have to stop sooner or later. And then you still have to decide what to do. And I, I love that line. I think that's such a good. I like how he says, like, hey, crying's okay, but it doesn't really solve anything. He's like, you still have to figure out what to do when you're done. You know what I mean? And I was like, mm-hmm. what a good way, I think, to not be like, oh, Jill was a baby for crying, but saying, like, hey, like, listen, crying's fine. It was great. But, like, it doesn't solve anything. And yeah, it might make you feel better. And this book has a lot of those moments where I feel like they really they show some like more negative traits from the characters, but say that like, Hey, this is brought about by stress or this is brought about by this. And you still have the right choice. Kind of like, Hey, it's in the past and you still have to decide what to do. You still do. Yeah. It's not like the end all be all. Right. You know, you, you, you kind of are like, okay, well my actions don't necessarily have like, you know, there's not just one thing for me to do. And then that's mm-hmm. the end of it. It's like, no, it's like there's that. And then there's, this path and this path and then you choose one then there's this path and this path right so you kind of branch out and that's how your character grows both in the book and in real life as well but i do say so myself but of course the good old mr aslan shows up yeah he kind of shows up and, and is he like blows eustace <laughs> yeah yeah he <laughs> blows him off to safety Wait, yeah i don't know why this image is so funny in my hand but i do imagine at least just a little speck in the sky just <laughs> Like, yeah, he just kind of blows him off to safety yeah. and it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll bring you to him, whatever. Yeah. You know, I'm, and this is where Aslan just kind of has like a one on one with Jill. Yes. And Jill's like horrified the whole time, yeah. essentially, because she's thinking, OK, Yusuf had no idea about this world. This all had to just be by chance. And yada, yada, yada. And, you know, she's trying to basically not get killed by this lion. Then she has no idea what's going on. You kind of get the sense that she's in shock for most of this yeah as aslan's kind of like i may or may not eat girls i may or may not you know let you drink again you're like dude i feel like we've i feel like we've already read a lot of quotes but i do think this goes to show how much i do like the silver chair so i don't know who who do you want to read for jack this is on my page 20 and the jill is given a task and i'm starting with are you not thirsty i don't know which line you want to read okay do you want to be Aslan or do you want to be Jill? I'll let you be Jill. Okay. (laughs) Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst. Then drink. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked a whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, the delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I do come? I make no promise. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was like, yeah, Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had taken a step closer. Do you... Eat girls. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. 
I daren't come and drink. Then you will die of thirst. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I, I must go and look for another stream, then. There is no other stream, said the lion. And I <laughs> will end it there. But yeah, I like <laughs> I like how, again, and we'll, I think we'll talk about a little bit more of kind of the, the Christian allegory stuff later on after we've covered the whole story, because I feel like it's really and kind of check in with every single story, you know, as because we've we're five in. Right. We only have two more. And I know the last battle is very much. There are some moments in there that I think are very direct, but. We'll kind of discuss at least that aspect later on after we've covered most of the story. But yeah, at that point, Jill is given some tasks and Aslan has him repeat her or Aslan has her repeat it multiple times. She kind of gets it wrong and he like is really patient with her and he doesn't ever seem angry with her. That's a cool thing about Aslan in this one is Aslan feels much more of like a uh, authoritative figure in this one. Like he doesn't quite seem... It's very similar to Horse and His Boy, where when he shows up in Horse and His Boy, he's very much... Matter of fact. Matter of fact. He's not... This is not the Aslan that we know from Lion, Lush, and Wardrobe, or even Prince Caspian, where he's much more alive. He's a little bit more removed and distant. And I think as Narnia has kind of aged, so has he. And that that's why that relationship is more different now, you know, like... And plus, I think that's what Jill kind of needs, is that, like, authority figure to say, like, hey... These are the signs. Yeah, because he's not. You would have heard them together if you hadn't shoved him off the cliff. But I guess uh, I'll tell you and you have to tell him when you see him. Yeah, because he's kind of like this throughout the whole book. Mm -hmm. I mean, whenever he does pop up, he's very matter of fact until, you know, the very end. But so it's really interesting to see how it's almost the way he is very much depends on the way on what people need Mm -hmm. is what it seems like. Yeah. So. I don't know. This is like the this is one of the first times you're really seeing that such a in such a long interaction. I right. feel like this is like one of the longer interactions with Aslan that we have. Yeah, and I like how he shows up at the beginning, right at the beginning. Oh yeah, and gets you right in. Gives him the mission, the four signs. Jack, yeah. without looking, you know the four signs. I do not. Okay, let me see if I let me see if I got him. So. When you first arrive in Mar- Narnia, like I told you before, I got meet- here. It's been like a week and a half bef- since I've read this. So, so the first sign is if, if you can find him for me and verify. First sign is you meet. First arrive in Narnia, you'll meet an old and dear friend, and you must speak to him immediately. Uh, God, I don't, I don't know if I know the second sign. I know what the the fourth sign is. You will recognize him by using the name of Aslan. Or he'll invoke the name of Aslan. There is definitely some sign about reaching the giant city, finding words there. Okay, what'd you, oh, sorry, what would you say the first one was? Recognizing an old friend. You have to talk to him. Yes. Yeah. He'll recognize an old and dear friend. You must speak to him immediately, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second sign, I don't know. You want me to tell you? Yeah. Second, you must journey out of Narnia to the north till you oh, okay. find... You come to the ruined city of the ancient giants. And then third, they'll find something written there that they have to listen to. Mm-hmm. And then fourth, they'll know the prince or they'll know their ally when he calls upon the name of Aslan. Something like that. Yes. Right. Okay. So, okay. I, I think 
think I would have been fine. I mean, after, I after, I a, bit of, after a bit of brain scratching, after a cup of coffee, you know. I feel like I knew, like, you know, the the gist of the oh, symbols. Yeah. The but gist. I think that's what's kind of great about it is I feel like that's what the characters understand. Like, Jill understands, like, the gist of them. Yes, she repeats them, but it does talk about how she gets lazy and repeating them to herself later on. Mm-hmm. And so, Jack, again, I really don't want to go. I feel like we always end up going beat by beat, but... Talk to me a little bit about this arrival back in Narnia and how things have changed since we've last been here. Of course, the last time we saw Narnia was Horse and His Boy, which is very different. So really, the last time we saw this current Narnia was Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Yeah, so I mean, it's been, God, I don't know how many years, because Caspian was how old in the last one? Like, got 18, eight, 19? Yeah, around so it's there. definitely been a good... And so it's been probably like a good 80, 90 years. So 70, yeah, 75 to yeah. 85 years around there because Caspian is this old, old man. Yeah. And if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, Eustace, so Jill finally meets up with Eustace again. Yes. The Aslan like blows her away. And they're both like wet from the clouds. And yeah. They're really, the zooming mission. It's so, yeah. for, anyways. And so Eustace sees, he sees Caspian. Yeah. And recognizes him. No, he doesn't recognize him. He doesn't? Mm-mm. Well, because he's like, Caspian like, I see like an old king. Yeah, he asks, he knows he's the king, but he doesn't recognize it as mm. Caspian. Then I, f- I forget who he recognizes then. Like, because Eustace wants to go talk to someone. And Jill, isn't Jill being like, hey, like, I'm pretty sure, like, don't, don't you, don't you know who this guy is? And he's like, I, I don't know. Right? Let's see here. I'm, I'm, listeners, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, listeners. Okay, hold on. We're, we're book scrounging. This is why I need to start uh, annotating with uh, uh, sitting by the lion himself. Hey, <laughs> is that we mean Trumpkin? Not useless, useless. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Useless. Oh, that's great, great stuff, great stuff. Yeah, because that's what. Yeah, so they meet an owl. Yeah, Glenfeather. Glen Glenfeather. Who? Takes them to Trumpkin, or they're already talking to Trumpkin. And Trumpkin's like an old dwarf by this point. Yeah. And that's why he can't. We can, like, we can, we can go. Just give it It's fine. So, anyways, long the story short. Long yeah. sale. And then that's, Yus is like, well, who is the king? Yeah. Learns that it is Caspian. He's yeah. like, that's who I should have gone and talked to. Yeah. But Jill's like, I, you know. I've already messed it up. And so they're, yeah, they've already screwed the first sign, basically. Yeah. And later in the night, they. Are both awoke, uh, awakened by Glimfeather and taken to. Oh, let's not skip. Let's not skip over Trumpkin and his little um, his little donkey, donkey carriage and his ear horn. <laughs> what a classic! We, it's classic, classic. I think humor in there. We don't have to go over it, but oh, yeah, so it's it is, like beat by beat. But you know, it's, it is so, very funny. It's yeah, they do meet Trumpkin. I don't think Eustace ever met Trumpkin. No, because Trumpkin, 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 Trumpkin was regent while Caspian was sailing. Yes. And he's um, region again now. Yeah, and what you get a little bit of odd stuff from Glimfeather when Glimfeather's like, hey, don't tell Trumpkin you're looking for Rillian. And they're like, why? Yeah, Eustace at first is like, hold on, like I'm not going to betray anyone. And oh, yeah. Glimfeather's like, well, no, it's not about betrayal. It's the fact that they've lost so many good men trying to find the king's son that they just don't want to. The wanna... king was like, hey, it's not worth it. Like, yeah. It's not well, worth like, it. It's not that it's not it. worth it, but it's like... I. We, I'm not going to sacrifice more people for the sake of, you know, maybe finding them. Right. I, we don't know what's happening. Yeah. You know? So they kind of figure out they have to secretly meet. meet but it's not meet. really it's not really a secret on purpose. It's just secret because owls, the owls meet yeah, at night. Owls and they're yeah. nocturnal animals. You get the parliament of owls part. The parliament of owls. Where all the owls are talking about. 
And that's when they agreed to take the children to the Marsh Wiggle Puddle Glum. The Marsh And Wiggle. really get that way, you know, really start the quest <laughs> in earnest. And kind of, yeah, kind of doing it outside Sorry, of... I feel like, I feel like cough you? and sneeze at the same time. And I was like, I'm going to like throw up or something. <laughs> that was the weirdest Jeez. feeling. I, I apologize. But... Yeah, kind of outside of, like, Trumpkin's wishes, you know. But Glimfeather recognizing, like, hey, Aslan sent you. You guys have to do this. We'll take you to Puddle on the Marsh They do, but yeah, before they bring them to the Marsh Wiggle, they also kind of give you the backstory into ah. Prince Rillian. And the whole talking of, like, okay, there was this snake that actually bit Caspian's wife. And you find yeah. out that Caspian's wife was the woman that he met. Ramandu's daughter. Ramandu's daughter, which I yeah. forget her name. But good question. She's bitten by this poisonous serpent that yes. they can't get to Venomous, her in time. Bright green serpent. That's I love how many times like that's mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Like the deep- yeah, they mention it a lot in the story. And then sorry, we're cutting ahead a little bit here. They mention that a lot in that story. And then the first time they see the woman in green and then the black knight. Why don't the children immediately go, hey, you're wearing a very green dress. And I guess, I don't know. Anyways. Well, I mean, like when you're in that situation, I don't know if you're aware enough to put that stuff together. Right. They also, they're all, they are also children. So, yeah. you know, there's a whole couple bits and pieces. Yeah, and you learn that, yeah, after um, Rillian's mother was killed, he basically went out and started at that pool. And went hunting for the serpent. And then slowly but surely, you know, he keeps going out, keeps going out. And then finally, Drinian, who you remember from Voyages on Treader, is like, hey, man, you're not going to find it. And he's like, oh, I've actually forgotten all about the serp- or the, the serp- serpent. Yeah. And he's like, well, what are you talking about? And he's like, hey, I've been seeing this woman, you know, and she's really enchanting. And he's like, I'll go with you. And so even Drinian sees the woman. Knows that it's, something's kind of off about her, but she's very enchanting, very enchanting. And they seem yeah. to kind of look at her and she, what, disappears. And then Drinian is like, hey, don't go back. And he's like, yeah, you can't stop me. And then does not come back the next day. And then Drinian, I love I love that line where Drinian's like, King, you may execute me now because I basically let your son go. And then uh, I, I thought this was funny. Caspian draws his sword and is like totally ready to kill him. And then is like, I have lost my wife and my son. Should I also lose a dear friend? You're like, oh, so sad. Yeah, you're like, oh, King Caspian. <laughs> Poor Caspian, man. Like, he just, you know, and so, yeah, ever since then, it's been 10 years. No one's found King Sung. So, like, there's no heir. Golly, to the Caspian now. had a son late, dude. Yeah. So like, there's real no, late. You know, there's no heir to the throne. And Narnia is not, while it's not definitely falling into chaos, it's definitely kind of uncertain the future of this royal line. And of course, they go and they meet Puddle Glum. Now, Jack, talk to me about this masterpiece of a character. Because I. Here we go. I mean, just like I would say Bree and Horse and his boy, Puddle Glum is like one of the top three he's a top side tier. characters. He's like, like in the, he's in the I mean, S tier. He's a side character. He's a main character. Like, he's, he's the S tier. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, so good. <clears throat> Jill had to pinch herself to keep awake, for she knew that if she dozed off on Glenfather's back, she would probably fall off. Well, <laughs> when at last the two owls ended their flights, she climbed stiffly off Glim- Glimfeather and found herself on flat ground. A chilly wind was blowing, and they appeared to be in a place without trees. I don't know. Two woo, two woo, two woo. 
Okay. Glimfeather was calling. Wake up, Puddleglum, wake up. It's on the lion's business. For a long time, there was no reply. Then a long way off, a dim light appeared and began to come nearer. And with it came a voice. Owls ahoy, it said. You did, I was going to say that's the exact what same voice. What is it? Is the king dead? Has an enemy landed in Narnia? Is it a flood? Or dragons? And when the light reached them, it turned out to be a, <laughs> that, that of a large lantern. She could see very little of the person who held it. He seemed to be all legs and arms, and the owls were talking to him, explaining everything. But she was too tired to listen. She tried to wake herself up a bit when she realized that they were saying goodbye to her. But she would never afterwards remember much. Except that, sooner or later, she and Scrub were stooping to enter a low doorway, and then, oh thank heavens, were lying down on something soft and warm, and a voice was saying, There you are. Best we can do. You lie cold and hard. Damp too, I shouldn't wonder. Won't sleep a wink, most likely. Even if there wasn't thunderstorms or a flood, or the wigwam doesn't fall down on top of us all, as I've known them to do. <laughs> Must make the best of it. So we're introduced to Puddle Glum. Oh, I, I like, you gotta follow it up. But Go she was fast asleep, the voice had ended. When the children woke late in the next morning, they found that they were lying, very dry, warm, <laughs> on beds of straw in a dark place. <laughs> like, yeah, so they're introduced to Puddle Glum, the Marsh Wiggle. Who, I guess, they kind of describe him. He has like a short, stocky body, like almost like a dwarf, but he has really long legs, really long arms, kind of webbed hands. Like I say, he's he's very frog-like. Very like Marsh frog. Wiggles are very yeah. frog-like people. Yeah. They live um, in these swamps. They live in these little wigwams. <laughs> and it's a, uh, he's absolutely great because he's basically like super pessimistic about everything. And like it makes it so clear Right from the get-go that he's like, oh, you're not going to like this food. Oh, you're not going to, you know, imagine. And they're like, oh, no, it's actually really good. And he's like, ah, putting a good face on it. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know, we like our privacy. There's not another marshmallow yeah. for miles. But, you know, there's hundreds of us around. And, you're and like, I love that fact that this is just a race of just people who are super pessimistic, expect the worst, but are really solid and dependable. But they talk about how Puddle Glum, this Marshwiggle, is the happiest of all, all the Marshwiggles. And he's not very happy, which I'm like, man, what are the other ones like? <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> it's, I mean, I just, I remember this part very clearly in the audiobooks, just mm -hmm. them meeting Puddle Glum and him talking about like the fish and how they're not going to like it. But like, oh, yeah, like you said, it's, it's good. And then he's like, oh, well, it's good to put a good face on it. We've got a long way to go. And who knows if we're ever going to make it. We might die or freeze or... But we'll try our best. That's all you can do. I love his I shouldn't wonder. Yeah. There is... Oh, man. I, I got to read another part here. Oh, keep reading. Keep reading. Why? It's no reason that you shouldn't like our sort of victuals, though I have no doubt you'll put a bold face on it. All the same, while I'm catching them, if you two could try a light of fire, no harm in trying. The woods behind the wigwam, it may be wet... You could light it inside the wigwam, and then we'd all get smoke in our eyes. Or you could light it outside, and then the rain would come and put it out. Here's my tinderbox. You wouldn't know how to use it, I expect. But Scrub had learned that sort of thing on his last adventure. The children ran back together to the wigwam, found the wood, which was perfectly dry, and succeeded in lighting a fire with rather less difficult, with rather less than the usual difficulty. <laughs> so, yeah, obviously, and right after that, I had earmarked the page where I love when he's smoking his his pipe, and it's like a heavy tobacco that like falls out of the bowl and like drifts across the ground. And Eustace is like, <laughs> I mean, so, so, so just the description of Puddle Glum is just great. Yeah, um, it's like a very extreme version of our brother Henry. 
Yeah, I could see that. I could definitely see that. Henry does kind of have that, like... But, like, not, like, in a bad way. No, just yeah. kind of, like, you know, hey, you know, might as well... Yeah, they call him, like, they call it, like, a wet blanket, and he just seems to, like, always look at the negative side of it. And that kind of goes on. And that, his character really continues like that for a lot of the story. And then, of course, from here, they kind of head out. Again, this part of the book, it's, like, a big travel section of the book where they're kind of just traveling forward. They cross the river. They kind of get into Ettensmore, the land of the giants. Yeah, so this in this part, yeah, we'll kind of skip ahead just a little bit. Not because we're like short on time or anything, but just because this part's just kind of, eh. Yeah, and this is, you know, not like it, not in a bad way, but like not a lot happens that's like. No, it's a lot of character building. Like you get a lot of, you know, the characters and what they're doing, what they're trying to decide to do. And they move pretty quickly and they do, you know, I think at some point hit the part where all the giants are like stupid and throwing themselves. Well, like. yeah. So Jill, like they're like, wa- I think they're, I believe they're walking or are they in a boat? I think they're, they're walking. walking. They're walking. Um, and Jill's like, Oh, like these, all these rocks look kind of weird, kind of yeah. funny. They kind of look like faces. <laughs> oh, they are faces. Yeah. And then the giants like start getting up and like fighting themselves. And Pelgum's yeah. like, well, you know, they're fighting each other, but who knows? They might step on us or, yeah. you know, and you're like, okay, well, cool. And then they're, they're like throwing boulders. At yeah, each they're other. walking past like a another place where they see nothing but the heads of the giants. And my first thought is how horrifying that would be. Yeah. You just have all these giants fighting each other in this gorge or like throwing boulders at a target and puddles like they're not throwing them at us. But no. they might as well be because they're such bad shots. They're trying to hit that rock over like, there. They talk about how they have these like stone hammers and they hit each other in the heads, but the hammers just bounce off, but it vibrates the hammer and hurts their hands, which makes them even more angry and want to hit harder. And I'm like, I'm like we've all been there. I'm like, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just this kind of chaotic moment. And I believe that kind of culminates with them finally getting to this old giant bridge, which is awesome, by the way. And that's the first time they see huge in, bridge with yeah. huge stones and like, like some of them are falling off that fall like far below to and the my, foaming my first thought is how cool would this be if this is done like in like a series or a movie oh. or just like the scale this, of this book i think yeah. i really enjoy because like the way that he plays with heights and mm-hmm. depths of all kinds in this book is like really well done it and gives you a really good idea of like what you're looking at and yeah. how it looks and how it makes you feel. You're like, oh, I, yeah, I can understand that. Like yeah. I've been on, I've been on the roof of the house before when I was like cleaning gutters or something. And right. yeah, like ten feet is pretty high, and these giants are like, you know, twenty feet tall. You're yeah. like, okay, like it's kind of freaky. Yeah, and it's definitely it's cool too because this is also the first time we're seeing giants from like that, you know, from the characters' eyes because they mention giants a lot. And of course, we did see giant and lion witch in a wardrobe and you see them kind of here and there but this is the first time you're kind of seeing them because they always mention that like oh the high king went off to fight the giants and i mean in fact horse and his boy that's why peter isn't there because he's fighting the giants yeah and so of course this is hundreds no maybe a good maybe thousands i don't actually know how long the golden age was from now from Caspian the 10th, so I think, God, we're thinking maybe a thousand years. So Caspian the 8th or Caspian the 9th was Caspian the Conqueror. Okay. Right? So then Caspian was Caspian the 10th. So really, we're not, we're not that far removed from Prince Caspian. Maybe by a hundred or so years. And they, and Caspian heard the stories of Narnia. 
It might have been like a couple hundred years, actually. Anyways, this is the first time they meet the lady in green and the Black Knight, who's awesome. The Black Knight reminds me, like, for some reason, when I read this part, it really reminded me of an encounter you'd have in, like, Dark Souls or Elden Ring, where you just see two random people, and they're like, oh, hey, by the way... You could go to this giant's place and tell them they are there. The gentle giants, by the yeah, way. Yeah, and you have to like exhaust their dialogue as yeah, you're talking to them. Yeah, and the knight is just standing there, doesn't yeah, say anything. You try to talk to him, he just turns black, his head. Really yeah. imposing. I imagine him being really imposing. And immediately the children are kind of... Uh, Excuse me. Are try, try to just threw up a little bit? No. <laughs> Are taken in by this woman, and they kind of like want to tell her stuff, but Puddleglum is very resolute. It's like, no, don't He's tell like, him anything. Now we don't tell her what. <laughs> I know. <laughs> now you kids, I'll do the talking. Yeah. And you're like, okay, Puddleglum, I, I see you. I see you. Like this is like, and this is one of the first encounters you see. Like Puddleglum knows what he's like. He's like, for lack of a better term, he's very like street smart. Street smart. <laughs> like I think. Yeah. Um, but he's just like a super pessimistic guy. So he's like, yeah. well. We might get killed by her, but or that night maybe. But let's go up and yeah. see if we can't learn anything. Basically, yeah. And so, and it's funny because like they end up, you know, telling them like, "Hey, we're going to find the ruined giant city," and the, they tell them of Harfang, the castle of the gentle giants, and they kind of you know move on. And after that, Puddleglum's like, Jill's like, "Oh man, I wish we had kind of like told her more. Like she sounded really helpful." And Puddlegum's like, "Well, she didn't really tell us anything about herself." Yeah, like why would we want? And then go like, to why didn't giant? that knight say anything? Yeah. He's like, "I'm gonna open it up and be a skeleton under there, or nothing." <laughs> <I'm> like, or <laughs> he could be invisible. And I, I love it. It's so good. Like he's just—he basically feels like the C.S. Lewis being like, "Oh hey, I bet you didn't think that the knight could be evil." Think about, think about that, think about that. or think the night could be invisible or a skeleton or you know what yeah. don't know who is under there she could be a necromancer she could be a necromancer pretty cool you have no idea and so they continue on and it, you know it's funny jack i really like the silver chair a lot however i did find when i was reading it that i think this from the start of their journey really up until they get into the deep or they get underground that like bored is the wrong word but it made me it took a little slow took a couple pegs out of it and i really think it's because i know the mystery of this i remember when i first read this book and before they get to harfang and they're seeing it and they're like climbing over this weird stuff and they're falling down these ledges and like i remember being like just like what is going where yeah what is this where i thought they're in a city why are there all these trenches here right like and Dylan it's used, uh, really cool the way it's described. But once you know, hey, mm-hmm. having the pre knowledge of, hey, I know they're in the city right now, and they're kind of they're going through the letters, and they don't even realize. See, I almost it. kind of, I I think I had a different experience because I kind of yeah. I was reading it to Ellie, yeah, and like Laura and I were kind of switching off, mm. um, and so I think I still kind of had that kind of, even though I knew she probably wouldn't, you know, retain a hundred percent of it. There's still a little bit, a little bit that she's like. Ooh, like that. Yeah. I think that she's kind of getting so that just made me excited. Yeah, I didn't even know how much she was getting from it. Right. Um, but I really, I still, I still like this part a lot, yeah. and I like the slow discovery because they finally, 
So Jill's like forgotten about repeating the science. She's yeah. like, screw the they're science. Tired. I just want to go to Harfang. Yeah, they're cold. They're tired. And he can't. That's the thing is you can't blame him. Like, because it would no, suck. Yeah. And Puddlegum's like, hey, like, I, I don't think we should. I really, I still think yeah. we should go. <laughs> and they're we like, still shouldn't they're go. like, dude, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're, we're dying out here. And it's like, we probably won't get there to the next day. And the gates are closed. Yeah. And you're like, dude, <laughs> just, just, just try. Just at least try. Um. Anyways, so. They finally get to Harfang. Is that drink okay? Oh, yeah. Some bones in there? <laughs> uh, they finally get to Harfang, and the giant answers, and it's like, oh, like, no, little, basically, so the, the witch, preface before I do this, the giant speak, the witch is like, hey, tell them that the witch of the green kirtle sends the giants for two the, children for their autumn, autumn feast. Feed, yeah. Which, once you realize what she means, you're like, <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, it's great, and I, I do, I really like the whole Harfang part because of that, because I do think, whether as like the city stuff, I got kind of bored with because I already knew this part. I think is way more creepy because you know what's happening, especially like having that pre knowledge. But of course, for anybody out there who doesn't quite know yet, they get into the the castle of the giants. They meet the the giant queen. Lewis does a really good job here of uh, scale and stuff about how the giants like pick them up. And he like they're not. I don't think the giants are like super huge. No, but they're, they're like 15, 15, 18, feet 15, tall, 20 like, feet tall around there. Like yeah. they're big, but they're not like enormous yes. giants. Yeah, which is really cool. I really like how he plays with that a lot. Yeah, they go and meet the king and the queen, and I like how Jill is like, man, the <laughs> the queen looks really horrible. Because they talk about how the, yeah. she has this huge powdered face, which is made worse by how big she is. Yeah, and, and she was like super fat. She was like, well, the king, I, I guess I can see for he's giants. He's, yeah. he's a little handsome for for a giant. Yeah. But she was like, the queen is. Mm-hmm. Oh, the queen. Yeah. Uh, and so they kind of like tend to them. They give Puddle Glum some bait, like some alcohol. Alcohol. It's like <laughs> he's like, I'll try it first, kids. Like it might yeah. be poisoned. Um, first drink it tastes oh. all right. But who knows what has a second drink? Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> Um, it's still fine, but what if it's all the way down? Like, and you're like, okay. I like how Puddleglum, too, later on, he mentions that he's like, no, I wasn't actually drunk. I was just pretending. Well, it's another side note, like, CS Lewis <laughs> has done. It's like, you know, he's like, for, like, as much as he wanted to believe, he was telling the truth. Like, yeah. he wasn't drunk. He did it the was exact all the same thing with Bree. Exactly. Did, yeah. yeah. And so I kind of like that little thread there. A little yeah, parallel. Um, but yeah, they go into this house and the. The giants treat the children like they're babies, like they're trying to give Jill all these like kind of horribly, crudely made toys, which I love that image of them like giving her like this, this kind of horrifying doll or this, you know, just clumsily made stuff. But yeah, and they sleep in their nice warm beds. They're kind of like taken care of by like the queen's wet nurse. And, and then eventually they kind of all meet Jill in the room and Eustace is like, dude, your window has a ledge. We could all sit up there, which sounds awesome, by the way. I love to sit on a window ledge like that. Like, a, I love a this giant scale. ledge. But then that's when they look down and they first re- they realize, like, oh, hey, all of that stuff we were going through, that's the ruined giant city. And then they see the letters under me. And they're like, aw, dude, we messed it up again. <laughs> like, we didn't. Like, we were there and Puddlegum's like, I bet you if we would have stayed out there, we would have found, like, a door. He just basically hammers it home. And you're like, okay, we get it. We you're get like, okay, it, we, we messed up, man. It reminds me of, okay, and sorry, I guess I'll have to tag this episode as explicit now, but it reminds me of uh, the wise kids you know, Skit. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln's like, 
now you fucked up. Now <laughs> you have fucked up now. Oh my I'm god. I'm gonna go beat him with a hammer. I'm gonna go beat him with a hammer. Oh my god, that's that's a good sketch. Man, maybe we should do a Sorry, this is sorry, listeners, but this is a super big tangent, but Michael, I know you're listening to this episode. Would you be on board? Sorry, and folks out there who are curious, Michael did have to go down into the dungeons. He'll be rejoining us for the Magician's Nephew. You need to sort through some more mail that we've been getting. Yeah, we're getting a lot of mail. We're getting a lot more mail recently, especially after the Quartz Foundation episode. Anyways, mm. that's that's side lore. But, Michael, when you hear this, let us know if you want to do an episode all about Whitest Kids You Know. That you would know, be, We should have Lily on for that as well. Yeah, that would be just a fun... We could do super casual. Maybe we could open a couple beers and stuff like that. Like, just have a good time. Like, maybe make it a little more casual, roundtable-esque. Anyways, back to the story. A roundtable collection. But, Jack, walk us through this discovery. They leave. The Giants leave on a hunting party. The Autumn Feast is coming. Jill does a really good job of being like, oh, but please. You're trying to like, learn down. about everything. Yeah, really sweet and unsuspecting. Yeah. I think it's really cool. I, I really and like I love that. And I love like, you know, basically the only way like a girl can be, because like, yeah, you and some puddle glum were just lost. Yeah. They had no idea what to do, but she was like on it. Yeah. Because uh, like she like, in a way, she had to feel like she needed to redeem herself. Right. Yeah, because she so, does have that dream. Before they, yeah, she, yeah, that's Sorry, a freaky. Def- so she like wakes up in yeah. this giant rocking horse that they gifted her. So it's like rocking, and then I believe it just turns into a lion. I don't yeah. think it's Aslan. Like it's he doesn't like talk to no. her. It just turns into a yeah. lion, and then she wakes up, and she kind of forgets it until it comes back later when she sees like the sign on the window ledge. But yeah, so the giants are leaving out for a hunt before this autumn feast. But Jack, I mean, tell us all about this autumn feast. Are we excited? You know, for the the dishes being prepared. Yeah, and- so everything looks great. Like they're going out to hunt. You know, some. Some animals or whatever, but like in the everybody meet- seems really sad because they like l- seem to like the kids and they're like, oh yeah. So like they're talking like, about how sad they're like, well they're all sitting there eating. Yeah, but then while like this is so Puddleglum and the kids are both eating, and this is where it takes a little bit of a turn because Puddleglum's like, stop eating. I just heard those giants talking about how the stag was begging for them not to kill him. Yeah, and then. Jill at first is like, well, that's kind of sad, but what? Whatever. Oh, because then like she sees like, you know, Eustace and Pogon both look like they just have been eating a person. Yeah. And then Jill's like, oh, like yeah, like talking animals are like they're a thing people, in this yeah. world. You know, like yeah. they're good creatures in this world, basically. Yeah. Uh, and so they all get sick, and they're like, oh my goodness, this is not the place we thought it was. Did you want to read a little excerpt here? And so we they continue on. Yeah, it's the unsettling feeling. It's worse and worse. And they're basically like, hey, we have to get out of here. And so they basically are waiting for what, this old cook lady, this old maid. To yeah, fall so they asleep. find their way into like the little cook room. <laughs> cook room. I don't know what they call it. This is on page 134 for me in chapter something worth knowing. But while they're waiting for this person to fall asleep so they can kind of make their escape. I can't bear this, thought Jill. Distract her mind, she began looking about her. Just in front of her was a clean, wide table with two clean pie dishes on it and an open book. They were giant pie dishes, of course. Jill thought that she could lie down just comfortably in one of them. Then she climbed up on the bench beside the table to look at the book. She read, Mallard. This delicious bird can be cooked in a variety of ways. It's a cookery book, thought Jill without much interest, and glanced over her shoulder. The giantess's eyes were shut, but she didn't look as if she were properly asleep. 
Joe glanced back at the book. It was arranged alphabetically. And at the very next entry, her heart seemed to stop beating. I got this. It ran. Man. This elegant little biped has long been valued as a delicacy. It forms a traditional part of the autumn feast and is served between the fish and the joint. Each man... But she could not bear to read any more. She turned round. The giantess had waked up and was having a fit of coughing. Jill nudged the other two and pointed at the book. They also mounted the bench and bent over the huge pages. Scrub was still reading about how to cook men when Puddleclum pointed to the next entry below it. It was like this. Mosh Wiggle. Some authorities reject this animal altogether as unfit for giant's consumption because of its stringy consistency and muddy flavor. The flavor can, however, be greatly reduced if... <laughs> and so, yeah. And it cuts off. They basically realize that the witch has sent them here to be eaten for the autumn feast. Yeah. Like, I have sent children for the autumn feast. I kept listening to, like, the wording, and I'm like, yeah, that's totally... Like, <laughs> it's really... And it's really horrifying because it like it connects a lot of dots in your head about like why they're being so nice to them. Like why? And you're like, oh, my gosh. And then they're basically like, yeah, we have to get the heck out of here. Oh, yeah. And so as soon as they learn that, then they hear like the snores of the giantess yeah. lady. She's asleep and they just bolt out yeah. this little back door. Oh, and I love this part. This part, the tension in this part yeah. is so good. And so Puddleglum's like, hey. So let's just, just yeah, keep so, it a stroll. So they're just like yeah, we're so getting some fresh air. So they're walking, but then the hunting party starts coming back. And he's like, hey, no, no, don't run. Yeah, just keep walking until I give the signal. We have to make it seem like we're just out for some fresh air. Okay, run. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like almost a bit <laughs> too late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so they're running. And you can hear, like, they hear the dogs barking, oh, yeah. the giants running after them. Yeah. And Jill is like, I can't run anymore, but I can't stop running. Yeah. And then she sees... Puddleglum is like way ahead, look yeah. around, like jump into this little hole or <laughs> <Yeah>. whatever. <laughs> You're like, what the? <laughs> yeah. And then Yusa jumps in after. Yeah. And then as soon as she jumps in, she's like almost about to faint. Yeah. She just jumps in and Puddleglum's like quick, like fill the hole up so the dogs can't get to us, basically. Yeah. They fill the hole and then the it's dogs like dogs barking all around. Yeah. Them and then, then they start crawling back and it's like dead silent after that. Mm. So, Charlie, if you want to continue on from here. And of course, this, I think, was. The part in the book, you know, like I'd already kind of gotten back in with the whole autumn feast thing and the giants eating man. But this starts, I think, my absolute favorite part of the book where they basically slip down into underland and the underworld, the underworld, which is freaking awesome. There's like this whole world that's underneath. The no, there are city. worlds underneath. Yeah, like, worlds. This is just. We'll, we'll get to that a little bit later because that's yeah. a, that's the whole part on its own that I kind of forgot about until I read it again. And I was like what like that is it almost made me anyways we'll get to that later but of course they get down there and it gets really it gets really dark and quiet and they end up finally hearing a voice and the voice well so before they hear the voice they all like lock hands yeah and Pogum's like trying to like okay it's like well Hopefully we don't die down here. You know, he's being his usual pessimistic self. And then suddenly starts slipping and he's like, let go, let go. And he's like, no, and then they all fall yeah. down this huge, you know, slip. Jill gets like a rock bumped on her head, a bruise here, like a cut and all that kind of stuff. But they make it basically unscathed mm-hmm. to the bottom. And then as soon as like the rubble clears, like, hey, are you okay? You okay? I'm good. I'm good. Then they hear the what words make you hear creatures of the overworld. God, that's a voice I haven't done in a while. I'm trying to get like real guttural with it. 
What? <clears throat> so I don't, I don't imagine it that. I, I think like some, something a bit, bit, bit more than that, but it's around there for me, anyways. And of course, chapter ten begins the travels without the sun, which is freaking awesome. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, they basically are approached by these like Earthmen, is what they call Earthmen. them. The Earthmen, mummified Earthmen, the mummified Earthmen. Yeah, the Earthmen take them forth. These kind of cold lamps. Yeah, and they talk well, about and the Earthmen are all different. Like, yeah. some are super tall, some are really short. Like, it, it's kind of like a freaky little yeah. hodgepodge of dudes. Yeah, but they kind of like continue them and go, and they keep going, and they find, you know, here. March, I mean, here they pass the dozens of strange animals lying on the turf, either dead or asleep. And do they grow here? Scrub asks, and the wardens seem surprised. No, they're beasts that have found their way down by chasms and caves out of the overland into the deep realm. Many come down, and a few return to the sun that lands. fall down. And I love this last little line they read. It is said that they will wake at the end of the world. Well, yeah, that's also... So you introduce all these creatures. Oh, yeah. There's and like they walk into another weird stuff down there, which I think that's why I like this book so much, is because you see a lot of stuff that you're like, What? Wait, and what blows your mind is after they see those weird creatures, you're like, okay, that's weird enough. They walk into an even bigger, like, ca- like cave. And who's that? Oh, that's Father Time. Yeah. He will awake at the end of the world. And you're like, hold on. Father Time? Yeah. Excuse me? Like, it's the whole, you're like, what is going on? Like, he just is a dude that exists here and will wake up. How long has he been here? Like, what's going... That is old father time. Who was once a king in Overland, said the warden. And now he has sunk down into the deep realm and lies dreaming of all the things that are done in the upper world. Many sink down and few return to the sunlit lands. They say he will wake at the end of the world. I read that part out because what's really funny is they go and they eventually hit these pale beaches in the ship that doesn't have a mast, but just has a bunch of oars. And <laughs> Puddleglum is like, one thing I'd like to know, said Puddleglum, is whether anyone from our world, from up top, I mean, has ever done this trip before. Many have taken a ship. At the pale beaches, replied the warden. And, yes, I know, interrupted Pundleglum, and few return to the sun that lands. You needn't say it again. You are a chap of one idea, aren't you? <laughs> like I love this that. Guy, that Pundleglum got even annoyed, because, like, he does say it a lot. Like, you get to the point where you're like, okay, I get it. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, Pundleglum's almost met his match at this point. Yeah, so it's so, like. it's so funny. Like, <laughs> But, yeah, they huddle close together, and, I mean... I love this idea of this sunless sea that they crossed and they cross it for like a long time. Like they talk about like they sleep and they wake up and they're still crossing and they don't know. And I'm like, God, can you imagine like mentally what that would do to you? Like that would be wild. Like it's just dark, unchanging, just continuing swishing over the silent waters. Horrifying, one might say. But eventually they reach this city. And a glorious city, you know, it's lights are scattered farther apart. It's this huge, huge city. And they talk about how 
there's not any sounds or voices, but there's kind of like this endless procession of footsteps, this soft pad, pad, pad of just footsteps and activity, but it's very quiet and eerie and it is there (laughs) that, you know, they eventually take them to what the print, do they call him the prince? Um, the prince uh, does the prince spot them and is like, "Hey, no, at this point, bring they, them up here." At this point, they call him the knight. The knight. Okay. Are you, are you going to read something? Oh no, no. I was just, I was just making sure I was in the right part. But of course, they go through the city and they eventually meet the knight, who is not immediately revealed. Uh, you don't quite know who he is, although I think you know, astute readers are pretty obvious that this probably is Prince Rillian. But he, what I really like about him is when he's first introduced. There's like he has like this cheer and this bravado that doesn't seem right. And I love that kind of touch where Jill's like he laughed and he seemed like he was having a good time. But like he seems weird, like he doesn't seem right. And I love that feeling like that. Just there's something off about him. Yeah. And he talks about how he doesn't know the land of Narnia. He doesn't have any idea. Yeah, it was like I, I came from there once, but I have no memory of. Yeah. You know, and. I don't know who you're seeking. Like, who is like, what, what are you talking about? And how he's basically like, they're digging these tunnels to prep and take over part of the overworld. And, but he ends up telling them that like, Hey, listen, by the way, you guys are going to have to chill out for a bit because I have these nightly fits in which I have to be tied to this chair. And he's, they're like, okay, cool. And, they are eventually, you know, they come in. He's like, oh, it's time for the fits. They tie him to the chair. And he kind of calls them to them before the fits really take him. And he's like, listen, I'm going to tell you all these things. And he's like, you can't let me out. You can't do it. He's like, you know, I will plead to this. I'll plead to that. And they're all like, okay, yeah, we promise. We won't, we won't do it. We won't let you go. And, of course, this is the, the pivotal silver chair moment. And, Jack, tell me a little bit about this part. Like, because I, this part is really cool. Because, like, the moment he changes and he starts, like, yeah, pleading so with them. What you figure out is, like, these night, these nightly, like, terrors or fits that he has are basically when he's not under the spell anymore. Yeah. And so they tie him to the chair. And the, the queen isn't there. I guess she's off. No, yeah, she's like, off surveying the tunnels yeah. or something. Yeah. And so, obviously, you're like, okay, then this is something that people aren't normally supposed to see, basically. And so he gets tied to the chair and is like, please, like I can see, like you are from the overworld. Like I want to go back, go back, you know, to my father, to the like to Narnia. And but Pokemon's like steady, like you know, like remember the sign. Doesn't he say like remember the signs or yeah. something? And yeah, so they're all kind of waiting. And then finally, he mentions Aslan, which, if you'll remember, is the last you know step or test or whatever clue, whatever, whatever have you. Yeah. And so at that point, they're like, all right, so we can we can yeah. trust this guy. And so starting at kind of like the beginning of this, the knight was moaning. His face was as pale as putty, and he writhed in his bonds. And whether because she was sorry for him or for some other reason, Jill thought that he looked a nicer sort of man than he did before. <laughs> he groaned. Enchantments. Enchantments. The heavy... Tangled, cold, clammy web of magic, buried alive, dragged down under the earth, down into the city blackness. 
How many years is it? Have I lived ten years or thousand years in this pit? Maggot men all around me, oh have mercy. Let me out. Let me go back. Let me feel the wind in the sky. There used to be this little pool where you look down into it and you could see all the trees growing upside down in the water, all green, and below them deep, very deep, the blue sky. He had been speaking in a low voice. Now he looked up and fixed his eyes upon them, and he said loud and clear, Quick! I am sane now. Every night I am sane. If only I could get out of this enchanted chair, it would last. I could be a man again. But every night they bind me, and so every night my chance is gone. But you are not enemies. I am not your prisoner. Quick! Cut these cords! Steadfast, steady, said Pogum to the two children. I beseech you to hear me, said the knight, forcing himself to speak calmly. Have they told you that if I am released from this chair, I shall kill you and become a serpent? I see by your faces that they have. It is a lie. It is this hour that I am in my right mind. It is all the rest of the day that I am enchanted. You are not earthmen nor witches. Why should you be on their side of your courtesy Cut my bonds. Steady, 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 said the three travelers to one another. Oh, you have hearts of stone, said the knight. Believe me, you look upon a wretch who has suffered more than any mortal can bear. What wrong have I ever done to you, that you should be, you should side with my enemies to keep me in such miseries? And the minutes are slipping past. Now you can save me. When this hour has passed, I shall be witless again. The toy lapdog nay, more likely the pawn and tool of the most devilish sorceress that ever planned the woe of men. And this night, of all nights, when she is away, you take me from a chance that may never come again. Oh, this is dreadful. I do wish we'd stayed away until this is all over. Steady, said Pogum. The prisoner's voice was now rising into a shriek. Let me go, I say. Give me my sword. My sword, once I am free, I shall take revenge on the earthmen that all underland shall talk of it for a thousand years. Now the frenzy is beginning, said Scrum. I hope these knots are all right. Yes, said Pogum. He'd have twice as much strength if he got free now. And I'm not clever with my sword. He'd get us both, I shouldn't wonder. And then Pole on her own would be left to tackle the snake. The prisoner was now so straining at his bonds that they cut into his wrists and ankles. Beware, he said. Beware. One night I did break them, but the witch was there that time. You will not have her help tonight. Free me now and I am your friend. I am your mortal enemy else. Cunning, isn't he? said Pogum. Once and for all, said the prisoner, I adjure you to set me free by all fears and all loves. By the bright skies of Overland, by the lion, by Aslan himself, I charge you. Oh, cried the three travelers as though they had been hurt. It's the sign, said Pogum. It was the words of the sign. So that was scrum. <laughs> <laughs> said scrum more cautiously. Oh, what are we to do? said Jill. It was a dreadful question. What had been the use of promising one another that they would not on any account set the night free if they were now to do the first time they happened to call upon a name that they really cared about? On the other hand, what had been the use of learning the signs if they weren't going to obey them? Yet could Aslan have really meant for them to unbind anyone, even a lunatic who asked it in his name? Could it be a mere accident or... If the queen of the underworld had knew all about the signs and had made the knight learn this name simply in order to entrap them? But then, supposing this was the real sign, 
They had already muffed three already. They didn't beer. They didn't dare muff a fourth. I like muff. I know, they didn't dare muff the fourth. That's great. <laughs> we can stop there. We don't have to keep reading. We read a long section there, but yeah, I love, I love that section. When yeah, they finally having... free him, and he immediately goes, takes the Go- sword, and you're like, oh yeah. Oh. Then goes around and starts like, kung, kung, like breaking the, the chair, chair. smashes oh. it to bits, and it's like I'm free. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really good. Yeah, again, it's revealed that he's really in, and you know this has happened. And then, of course, and unfortunately, who comes back for the evil sorceress? And I love again this part. We could also read verbatim, but we won't. We'll just kind of talk about it and kind of go into I think a bigger part of the allegory for this book, but. The evil sorceress basically starts to enchant them again. She throws some powder into the fire, starts playing this steady kind of thrumming beat on her, I don't know, lute or whatever it is. I don't I don't remember what instrument they describe it as. I imagine it's a sitar, like a something like that. I think like a lute would make yeah. more sense. And she basically starts to uh, just super magically gaslight them and be like, oh, this sun you're talking about. It's not the sun. It's merely a lamp, but bigger. Oh, this lion that you're talking about? Basically, she turns into like a, a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. And they like start to believe her. And it's only for Puddleglum, who just happens to like walk over to the fire and knowing that it's going to hurt him, stamps on a big part of the fire and is like, and it suddenly kind of clears their mind. And he goes on this, I think, God, great speech about how like, hey, I don't care if the sun isn't real or if Aslan isn't real, he's like, it's way better than this make believe world that you have. He's like, we'll believe we'll be children. We'll, you know, you can't shake us. And she's like, you fool. What have you done? You know? Yeah. But man, dude, Pogum, real MVP the actual right yeah, the yeah, MVP like, of the whole book. Like it is such a beautiful part. And I, I think it kind of gets into, we read, read more, but we just read a long section. Right. So, and I think it really, and we still have more to go here, but I think it gets a lot into, I think, kind of the overarching allegory of this book, which is about belief and about trusting yourself, which I really, really like that in this book. I really like how even if you can't see it, even if you can't feel it, like trusting in something and having faith is very important. <clears throat> and it's that way with the signs that it doesn't matter if you've messed up in the past. It doesn't matter if you've are going to mess up again in the future. It's like, no, if you stay steadfast and you keep your belief, you'll be fine. Yeah, and also in a way, like, hold true to yourself Yeah, as well. And it's just a really awesome part. And, of course, then the queen turns into a snake. And it's a, I love, he does it a couple times in this book. He's like, it took a long time to write this out, but it happened really fast, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, okay, I believe you. Yeah, like, no, go ahead and I tell thought. me. And it wraps around Rillian, and then he, they all together, I think Puddleglum, uh, Eustace, and Rillian all hack the serpent's head off. You know, blood is covering everything. And then there's like the moment the sorceress is dead, there's it's a, like it ends some kind of enchantment. Yeah, there's a, a loud crack. Like, yeah. And you're like, what's going on? And then like, yeah, so this is where basically like the, the like this undercity starts, starts falling flood, apart yeah. and starts to flood. Like this giant like dam it, is broken. Yeah, like it was only magical because... Of, like, this queen's magic. The queen of Underland. Yeah, so this giant, like, dam breaks, and the whole city starts flooding, and base is being destroyed. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, all of the Undermen are, like, suddenly broken in their enchantments. I like how and it, you learn of this guy named Glog. 
I think his name is. Or? Yeah, I like how you they they talked about how they're like they think they're moving like these military formations are doing these like quick little dashes and like looking around, but they're just like scared because they don't know if the yeah, queen no is idea. dead. Or, yeah, yeah. So, but they find out like yeah, like so we're just you know we're actually like, way closer to the surface than we like to be. Yeah, we'd prefer to be like way way down. And you're like, like you see dude, where that, you see where that lava is? Yeah, there's like, like this red glow yeah, like, down there, and so you learn a lot about. Like the depths, the literal depths of Narnia from this guy, Golg or Glog or whatever his name is. Yeah, and you learn of this and, place called Bism. Yes, and, and he's like, in Bism, we have diamonds and like gems that are so fresh that you can like literally eat like them. Like living gems. And have like the juice. And I'm yeah. like, like apples. And like, that's what I'm picturing, you know? He's like, the ones up there is like, that's a dead gold. That's dead diamonds. Like, yeah. We have the good stuff down in Bism. You can come see it if you want. And they're all like, that sounds great, but no. But really in... Much like his dad was like, I would love to be the one. My dad went to the end of the earth, and I went to the deepest Golg. parts of the earth. That's his name. Yeah. Gold. Gold. Yeah. Uh, so, and you, so you're kind of like, And oh, I like, love, too, there's a really nice touch where, like, the, the crack's starting to, like, close. And all the gnomes are, like, <laughs> jumping in. And whether it's by, like, the wind or the hotness, but, like, they're, like, slowly floating down. Yeah, and you're like, oh, Which okay. I love that little image of, like, all these guys just, <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. just, like, jumping in. Yeah, and they talk about how there's salamanders down there that, like, live in fire, and they, like, speak to you. And you actually hear one that's like, the rift is closing, you know, or better. And you're like, what the fuck? What is going on down yeah. there? It really, when I read that part, Jack, it really made me wish that there was, like, one more Narnia book where they went that far down. You and know so, what I mean? Like, Because yeah. it's, the way he talks about it is very, very cool. But then I do wonder, I'm like, can people even survive down there? I don't think like, so. I don't, like, dwarves aren't even down there. You know what I mean? So... Yeah, and he's like, those little things you call mines, pff, those barely <laughs> scratch the surface. Yeah, child's play. Yeah. Like, you come down the, to Bism sometime. You can have the fruits of, like, actual gems. Right. Um. Anyways, like, right before he leaves, Golg is like, hey, follow those lamps, and that's, like, where the opening is. Yep. And so they're all charging on these horses, the the queen's horse and also Prince William's Cold horse. Coal black and snow. Coal black and snow. Snowmane. Snowmane. I'm pretty sure Snowmane's the uh, horse. Then. Snowflake. Snowflash. Snow. Snow. Yeah, anyways, so they they, they're the charging and they're war. Like we're gonna be. And Puddlegum's like, hey, I'm. We've we've lost enough time talking to this dude already. We're probably gonna die in the flood, but we might as well try. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's I, one I, thing I should that's wonder great. if we're gonna die. That's one like, thing that's great about really. And he's he's like. Well, if you we, if we die, he's just totally like the yeah the polar opposite. He's like, ah, oh, it'll be the greatest adventure, and as long as Aslan is our good lord, and we shall never be letting you're like, okay, dude. And Jill's like, hey, I kind of want to stay alive. Like, yeah, let's let's go. Yeah, because they have that sweet moment where before they know the Earthmen are good and escaping, that they're like, hey, we're probably gonna die. And the prince is like, hey, let's all say goodbye to each other, and let's go. And I was like, that's it. That's so cool. Yeah, and they keep going and going, and it gets dark as the lights start to go out, and they kind of escape the water, but then they're just walking through this dark, dark tunnel, and they keep going, and then they have to dismount their horses because it is getting like too, you know, it's getting too cramped, and then eventually they see this little light, and Jill stands on Puddleglum's shoulders, and from their perspective, she like calls out to him, and then she like gets cut off, and then gets like pulled out, and they're like, oh, what have we done? Like, she was just killed. Yeah, like, we just sent a girl. Why would we send the only, like, yeah. girl out to be killed or whatever? Yeah, and then, of course, it's revealed. And we'll, we'll skip past a little bit of this part because we're already going a little bit long here. But Well, this is, we're probably going to skip past the part where they're looking, 
to like heal Puddlegum's foot, and he's like, "Oh, take it off at the to, knee. They're gonna, they're gonna have to amputate it. I shouldn't wonder." And you're like, "Okay, dude, calm yeah. down. You you got some bad burns. You they don't they don't have to cut off your whole ankle." But yeah, there's again, Lewis does the great thing where he really describes like how great some of the food is. He talks about sausages, how they're like. Not like our sausages, yeah. how they're like full they're, they're of meat. good, spicy, a little like bit burnt. meaty sausages. I like yeah. how he says they're a little bit burnt. He's like, like, they're cooked so well yeah. and just a little bit burnt. And I'm you're like, like yes. I know like <laughs> I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. And it's I like so that. Good. Yeah, they're basically rescued by Narnians. They were in Narnia the whole time. It's snowing outside. And, and Rillian is rushed off. Yeah, really is rushed see off. Because the return of Caspian. Yeah, his hopefully. father is coming back because apparently his father had a vision or they he saw Aslan. They're not quite sure, but it yeah, said, hey, No, yeah, Aslan back. visited him was like, yeah, you need to turn around and go back. back. What are you doing out here? <laughs> Stop. And so, but like at the same time, you're like, God, Caspian for the fourth time. No, this fourth. Like, this is like yet another thing. He's like, I can't even fulfill like my lifelong dream of going to the end of right. the world. Like, I can't even do that. But I think it's because Aslan probably told him, like, you will meet your son. And yeah, so, so he was like, back. that's. That's worth it. You know, more so than completing, like, something I'm going to do all my life, I'd rather see my son. And you're like, oh, that's so Jill and sweet. Eustace, you know, they ride on the back of Centaurs back to Care Parabella. Which is never heard yeah. of. Talk about how it's a little uncomfortable. You learn a little bit of how much Centaurs have to eat, which is cool. But, like, yeah, they have the, the, the stomach a of human a human stomach. and a horse. Now, the fawn does say that they graze. I, I have trouble picturing that. Is that, like, their man body, like... You know what I'm saying? Like, because a horse I, just bends its neck. I don't know. Is I it their man know. body being like, like. <laughs> but I like this part how they talk about how uncomfortable riding on a centaur is. Yeah. But th- he's like, they often think about how they could go back and relive that moment because they're going past these slopes, these mountains, these yeah. forests, like all this beautiful imagery. Like they they always thought after that day that they could they they wanted to go back and experience mm-hmm. that part again. Yeah. Um. It's a really cool moment. And so they finally get to, they go past the fords of Bruna and they yep. go to Care Paravel. Yep. Where all the Narians are, you know, gathered, you know, there's like trumpets playing and they see um, uh, the king's ship coming in, you know, to mm-hmm. the to the harbor. And they see Rillian, who's up there like in fine garb and everything. But they're, they're like, hey, we're not going like, to kind of shove our way up there. We're going to stay back on the centaur's backs and watch. And so it's all very jovial and nice. You know, flags are waving. Then this guy runs off the ship and goes and talks to Rillian and Trumpkin. And suddenly, like, things get a bit more solemn. And then these knights carry off this, um, basically, I forget the word, this this bed. Like a little litter or something. Yeah, this yeah. litter. Carrying King Caspian, who's, like, very old and very weak. Yeah. So you kind of already get what's happening. And mm-hmm. everyone's kind of very sad. But the king raises his hand, you know, to touch his son Rillian. Who hasn't seen in five, six years. Ten years. Ten years. Ten years, yeah. And everyone's like, yeah, cheering. And then suddenly the king's hand drops and everything goes quiet. And just Rillian's just weeping by his dad's side because Caspian's dead. And you're like, oh, like that's that's really, really sad. But, um, yeah. And then suddenly Jill's like, I wish we could just leave. Yeah. And then turns around Aslan's there. He's like, yeah, like, come on, let's go. Yeah. And takes them back to Aslan's country, which mm-hmm. you don't know is Aslan's country at this point. Well, like they, I think they kind of figure it out, but they don't. It's not really explicitly yeah. said. It's just like well, the, you remember in Voyage of the Dawn Treader when they catch that glimpse of like the high mountains. Eustace I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that's where they are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond and the edges of the world. So finally, they they're up there, and 
they're at this little stream and they yeah. see Caspian's old body like in the stream. Yeah. Where it looks like it's just underneath like some glass. Yeah. And Aslan's like, hey, take that thorn and like shove it into my paw. And Eustace is like, okay. Yeah. But like they're all crying. Even Aslan's yeah. crying. And the the detail where uh, he says a drop, one of the drops of the lion's great tears is worth more than if our whole world was a diamond. Yeah. You know, and you're like, I, I like that's like some good imagery, I think. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then so he jabs him in the paw with his thorn and a giant drop of blood. The the most red you've ever mm-hmm. seen drops out of his paw and into the stream lands on Caspian and suddenly he starts becoming younger. His beard, you know, becomes shorter and shorter until like it goes away. He His cheeks fill out again. He looks younger and then he wakes up and pops out of the stream and yeah. it's like whoa Yo. <laughs> like I'm, I'm back and then he embraces aslan they give each other kisses and stuff and then he's eustace. like oh my gosh like, eustace yeah, man, i like how he mentions how eustace broke his sword <laughs> yeah he's and he's like well i'm not a ghost i would be a ghost if i was in your country or yeah. my country but we're not in those countries anymore and aslan's like like no like you're you're in my country now and, and i like how even Ka- then okay yeah Caspian, okay. his last wish is like He's like, I, I do see wish it. I could have seen your guys' world. Yeah. That's the one thing I wish. And Aslan's like, well, well maybe this one time. Yeah. And you're like, you can you're take like, oh. Yeah. And I love, I love that because I think that's such a good way to end Caspian's character arc is that like he does get to see our world. Like he's, what, the only Narnian? Yeah. It makes like? me kind of tear. Well, I guess the only Narnian. Yes. Yeah. But he made, made me kind of tear up a little bit when I was rereading it earlier. I was like, man, it's like, it's such a sweet yeah, moment. It's really good. They basically like, Burst back through the whole wall falls down because the bullies are right there and Jill uses like this writing crop and they use their flat of their blades and like, beat up the bullies and cheat, cheat. send them crying back and Caspian and Aslan help them and and then as suddenly as it happens you know they're gone and like the authorities are called and because people are freaking out and then there's nobody there and the headmaster yeah, so, is like yeah the head <laughs> the head of the school is like I swear there's like a circus and everything and like, no, you're crazy. So go to like the council of all the headmasters. Yeah. And they're like, okay, you're too crazy for this job. But he found you a nice... investigate other headmasters. But he was too crazy for that. But he found a nice cozy job in parliament. Yeah, I know. And I was I lo- like, dude, you know those little sting? He was like, yeah, <laughs> suck it. Yeah, but that is uh, ultimately, I believe, I'm trying to remember like that last, last page here. Yes. Um, could I read the last page? Oh, of course. Yeah, go for it, my friend. Okay. Um, on my book, page 208. That's me. Okay. Okay, here we go. I'm going to start a little before that, though, <clears throat> with Eustace Buried. Unless you want to start farther no, back. That's perfect. Yeah, I love that. It's a great spot. Eustace Buried his fine clothes secretly one night in the school grounds. But Jill smuggled hers home and wore them at a fancy dress ball next holidays. And from that day forth, things changed for the better at the the experiment house. And it became quite a good school. And Jill and Eustace were always friends. But far off in Narnia, King Rillian buried his father, Caspian the Navigator, tenth of that name, and mourned for him. He himself ruled Narnia well, and the land was happy in his days. Though Puddleglum whose foot was good as new in three weeks, <laughs> often pointed out that bright mornings brought in wet afternoons and that you couldn't expect good times to last. The opening into the hillside was left open, and often in hot summer days, the Narnians could go there with ships and lanterns and down to the water and sail to and fro, 
singing on the cool, dark underground sea, telling each other stories of the cities that lie fathoms deep below. If you ever have the luck to go to Narnia yourself, do not forget to have a look at those caves. Mm. Great. But, folks, there you have it. There's the silver chair. Jack, reading through the silver chair, we've talked a lot about it. I think we can continue to talk a lot about it. You know, but what are we at right now? We're about an hour twenty-four. Wow! But wow, I gotta ask, where does this book kind of fall into the the rankings for you? Again, like it's it's really hard for me to like have. They're an all exact really close. Ranking. Like they're all like they're all like nine point fives, and we're talking about like, hey, this is a nine point seven, right? Like so, so like this this got to be like this has to be like a, this is nine point seven, yeah. I think. Like they're like you said, there's a little bit of that lull, but I do enjoy it. Like <laughs> reading it to someone who never experienced before, especially mm-hmm. Ellie, yeah. or hearing like Laura get into it was like really cool. Um, so kind of like a secondhand new experience was really awesome. Yeah. Um, but like this book explores some different avenues of magic yet again. Like this more kind of eviler side of magic yeah. that you know has kind of been there because you saw it a little bit in Prince Caspian, you saw it a little bit in the Voyage of the Dawn, of the Dawn Treader. Lion the, Lion, the Witch, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe, you've seen them all, like, different flares of it and how it keeps cropping up a little bit. Mm. Um, but, like, this is, like, an older magic that's been going on for, like, a much longer time, kind of akin to the White Witch, but just deep underground. Yeah. Um, and so it explores those aspects and yet also uncovers so many more questions with the deep fathoms below the earth, with, you know... The giants in the north with the marsh wiggles, which Father are apparently time. everywhere. But you, hey, this is the first time like they're a part of the story because they keep to themselves. Right. You know what I mean? So it explores a lot of different areas in Narnia that Narnia just keeps growing, and mm-hmm. that's what I love about the series is that each book just kind of it's like, hey, here's that, and then here's some of this, and here's some of this, and here's some of that. So yeah, I really like it. Yeah, I think for me, this one's hand in hand tied with Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, cause rereading Voyage of the Dawn Treader for me, I really, really like that one a lot. I mean, and this one I think is tied. Like I did say, I think going into this and this one was my favorite and I was kind of surprised again by that little lull that, that being said, there are concepts in this one that totally get my mind working and like make me want more, which I think is the best stories do that. Yes. And I like as well the, the darker tone of this one, not dark is the wrong way, but I like how they mess things up. Like, it's not quite as clean as some of the other ones are. Like, you got Puddleglum, who's kind of a downer, but a, a, you know, a lovable downer. They kind of mess up the signs until the last one. You know, they don't know if they're going to get out. And then it kind of ends happily, like, you know, all the other Narnia ones do. But the journey to there was a little bit more touch and go, it feels like. You know, like, you don't quite know what's happening until it all wraps up. And you're like, oh, my gosh, like, that was quite the journey. You know, I definitely think we could talk a lot more about this book and about some of like the deeper meanings and some of the deeper themes. And perhaps when we hit the end and after we finish the last battle, that might be a good time to really plan out a longer recording session and really exposit as a whole series. Yeah, exactly. Because while, like we always say, while these books are kind of geared much more young adult, even like, you know, like you know, like middle school read that kind of like, there's a lot of concepts in these books that are just really fascinating. Like you can really dive into. And I think that's like what makes these books so good and almost like 
timeless. Mm-hmm. Because no matter, like, even how it says in the beginning of the line of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, this little excerpt that C.S. Lewis wrote to his like um, niece or yeah, um, he's like, you might not read it now, you might not believe in magic and fairy tales now, but you did at one point, and one day you might again. So one day you're gonna pull this off the shelf, dust it off, and give it a read, and you can tell me all about it. By then I'll, I'll be, be old, too, too, and old. <laughs> too old to understand what you're saying, but you can still tell me about it. And right. I'm, that's like so. It's so sweet. It's so endearing. Like mm-hmm. these books have a legacy, and I do think this series like will go on. Like, and it lives on and doesn't ever really go away. Yeah. Because the families that do read this, then when they have when their families grow, they read it to that next generation. It just kind of keeps going because they're such good books with so many layers, layers, but not you don't read it and you don't go wow. This deep lore, yeah. you know, you don't. It's not like Lord of the Rings where you hear these things. You're like, oh my gosh, wow, this this. But it's no, it's very cleverly planted. It's very, you know, it's it uses its themes and its meanings and its messages. I think in a very smart way. It's not too preachy, you know. That because that was one thing I was worried about reading these again as an adult. I was worried that I was like, man, I worry that these are gonna be a little bit, a little bit preachy. But they're really not like. They're really, I think, fantastic explorations into these worlds and, of course, into faith. And, of course, I, you know, you say you can say faith, but really into Christianity and C.S. Lewis's whole kind of, you know, ideology and, you know, what he believed in. And it's really shown and displayed in how he's trying to share that with a younger generation and share that, I think, in a really beautiful way, which you often um, and again, we'll talk about it more, I think as we wrap up the whole series as a whole, but you often don't get a lot of healthy examples of religion being used to like help people or being used as a guidepost to point people on the right path. And it's usually, this is, yeah, sorry, go ahead. And this is like the one book series I would read and say like, no, like I think it's totally fine. Like I think it's yeah. fine to explore these themes and it's fine to explore this faith, even if you don't believe, or even if you don't agree, because there's stuff in here that I think is valuable for everybody. Oh, for valuable sure. for to be a good person to like treat each other kindly, you know, all that stuff. To, and like, so learn, yeah, in this book, learn from your mistakes and that like no matter what you've done, yeah. give or take, like you can keep trying. Like there's no reason to not keep going. I think right. Puddle Glum's a really good example of that. You can be a downer in all situations, but just because you are, he's still like the one who's like, we got to do he's it. The most, hey, he's the most. We got to go for them. it. I am going to stick by like my morals, and, like just yeah. keep going, yeah. you know, um, it's not heavy handed. Like, I'm sure you could have those people that will actually, you know, yeah. adjust glasses. But, like, no, it's it's not heavy-handed when you compare it to a lot of other, you know, books or messages that are out there with this kind of symbolism behind it. Right. So, I agree. I agree. I'm glad you agree, because if you didn't, you'd be wrong. Well, everyone out there, yes. thank you for listening to this episode of Chapters. Thank you. A book report podcast all about... The silver chair. I will say, I'm gonna throw this out there. We had one listener from Norway listen to us on oh. on Spotify. One little listen. So I just want to say a a tusen talk. Nice. That thank you. That's nice, thank you. Okay. Like thank you very much. Next time on chapters, we'll be talking about the magician's nephew. Which I say this for. I've learned, I think I've said this for every single one. It'd be fun to go in and cut every single thing out. <laughs> I'm real excited for this one. But this one, of course. I think is uh, special in its own way, very much like Horse and His Boy is special. A horse!
And I believe for that episode, Michael will be rejoining us from the dungeon. You know, he had to take his long sojourn down there to yes. sort through the mountains of mail. And that we've been I do want to say um, she was unable to make it to this early session. But our sister Lily has uh, agreed to take over kind of controlling mm, our Instagram, yeah. kind of like our social there. And so I'm really excited. Very thankful for that. Very thankful for that. Lily, thank you so much. And she and we, answered the call. She was like, yeah, hey, I heard you guys say that you don't know how to do it. And I, I was like, I don't. And I was like, great. Like, that's, she was like, I'll do it. Yeah, no big deal. And I was like, I'm so thankful for that. I really appreciate that. Love her so much for that, mm. as I always do. Um, and I, we want to have her on for an episode here soon. No, oh, I think it would be fun to have her on for an episode of like Animal Crossing. Mm, that'd be fun, yeah. Talking a lot about the old one and then the new one, which you guys could introduce me to. I haven't played the new one. Yeah. The New Horizon. Yeah. But... Man, we played that old one on the GameCube so much. What was that one called? I think it was just Animal Crossing. Mm. I think it was just Animal Crossing. GameCube edition. GameCube. GameCube. <laughs> Everyone, I hope you have a... <laughs> God, I, I, I was trying to talk through it. I couldn't do it. <laughs> Everyone, I hope you have a fantastic night, morning, or afternoon, if that's where you are. And, you know, for everyone out there, even if you end up in the sunlit lands and you can't get back, just remember, we'll always be here. We'll always be here to keep you company. No one else will, but we will here at the Raconteur Collection. Because we are actually in the sunlit lands. Which way you'll never return. That's the end of time. The goodbye. That's it. All right. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> that was a good one. Thank you so much for listening. Have a Peace. Good one. I'm going to leave and get some ice cream.